Good morning, church. Um, morning. Um, if you're here visiting us for the first time, welcome. If you are coming here or you come here from time to time, welcome. And if you're here week in, week out, welcome. I just want to extend a warm welcome to everyone here today. This year, um, we are doing a series. We're investigating the Gospel of Luke throughout the entire year. Last week, Rianne, Dennis did an awesome job of kicking off the series. Um, she did a really good job of introducing us to the Gospel of Luke. And she shared with us how Luke was a, um, a Gentile and he was investigating the claims of the early Christians. He wanted to find out if these claims of the early Christians were legit or not. And so he went about interviewing lots of people that experienced the risen Christ and he wrote it down into a gospel and it's called the Gospel of Luke. Today is the second instalment and we're looking at, so if you want to get prepared early, we're looking at Luke chapter 3 and we're going to specifically look at verse 3 through to 14. So you should see around on some of your seats we have some white Bibles and if you don't have one, um, put your hand up and someone might be able to give one to you. Um, Before I start, I just want to say a word of prayer, so if you could just bow your heads um, and join me in prayer. Dear God, I just thank you for the musicians and the worship that they've led us out in. I, for one, have been blessed by that. I just pray that you help me to be here now in mind and spirit, and I just pray that you help us to be here in mind and spirit, because you are here, your love is here, and you want us to connect with you. Amen. For the first 19 years of my life, I lived in the same house and I lived on a farm. I was lucky to live on a farm. I'm a farm boy. And growing up, um, living on a farm, you can get up to lots of, lots of things, have lots of fun. But sometimes during the holidays, It gets a little bit boring, especially in the Christmas holidays, because if you want to go anywhere, if I wanted to go anywhere living on the farm, I had to get my mum or my dad uh, dad to drive me somewhere, and sometimes they wouldn't want to do this and they'd be at work. But luckily for me, I had three friends that lived within walking distance, and we all had motorbikes. And so I was probably in grade five or six, and we'd spent the summer holidays just riding our motorbikes. But it was drawing close to the end of the summer holidays and we were sort of getting a little bit bored with riding motorbikes. So we were looking for some different kinds of things to do with our time. Now one of my friends whose name was Philip lived up on a hill. And his family owned a trucking business and they were responsible for doing construction. And every day we'd ride along and we'd ride past this whopping great big storm water drain it was it was probably as tall as i am and it was made of uh, concrete the kind of that you put underneath the road to carry water away and every day we'd ride past this on our motorbikes and then one day towards the end of the school holidays we were riding past and it's like we were drawn towards the storm water drain it had this gravitational pull and next minute we found ourselves standing next to this water, uh, this stormwater drain. And the stormwater drain was at the top of a hill. And we were looking down the hill, which went down a hill and into a wide open paddock. 
And then at the end of the paddock there was a dam and at the end of the dam there was the main road. And on either side of the paddock there was a valley filled with trees. So we're just sort of standing there. We're um, 11, probably 10 or 11, just sort of standing there. And I don't know whose idea it was. I'll just, I'll, let's just say it was Philip's. Um, we got it in our heads that it would be a good idea to set this stormwater drain free. So it's yay high and it's probably as wide as this stage. So it's pretty big. It's made of cement. And we thought, you know what? We're probably not going to be able to get this thing moving, but let's have a go. It'll be fun. Let's see what happens. We didn't really think it out that well. And so both of us got behind it, pushing, pushing. Oh, this isn't going to work. And then we thought, maybe if we roll it back and forward and get a bit of momentum going, it's going to happen. So we spent five minutes just rocking it, rocking it, rocking it. And it finally reached that counterpoint and it started to roll slowly. And we looked at each other and we were just like, oh, what's going to happen? I'm sh- sure you can imagine what happened next. We thought it was just going to get down the hill a little bit and get caught in some undergrowth. But bef- because before it bust out into a paddock, there was some trees and some lantana and some undergrowth. And we thought, you know what, we're going to be sweet. This thing's going to come to a stop. It'll be okay. And so we're watching with anticipation. It's rolling, rolling, and then it bounces, and it's still rolling, and it's rolling, and it goes into the undergrowth. And then it busts through the undergrowth, and it keeps going down into the paddock, picking up speed, rolling, 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 rolling. And we're just watching this thing going, what's going to happen? And we think, okay, it's going to go into the dam. It's going to sink. Nothing's going to happen. But then all of a sudden, it starts to veer off to the right. And it veers off into the right, goes down into the valley, this great big crash. The trees are shaking, birds come out of the, out of the valley, and we're just like, whoo! And the next thing we hear is, what are you kids up to? And we just looked at each other and just said, what should we do? What should we do? It's an important question. It's a very important question. What should we do? Well, we decided that the best course of action would be to get onto our motorbikes, go in opposite directions, head home, and pretend as though nothing happened. But we were called back to Philip's house and interrogated, and they worked out that it was us. But today's passage today's topic focuses around that question what should we do Um, I've asked myself at significant points in my life that question what should I do and it's a powerful question it's almost like an existential question it's got to do with human purpose where am I going next so in life you can just track along fine And then you come to a crossroads. You've got a decision to make. And you find yourself asking, what should I do? Where should I go next? In what way should I turn? And it's an important question. It's a powerful question because it can send us off in a new direction. And it can result in a radical change. 
And it usually comes up when we're in times of desperation. So the crux of today's talk is about that question. What should we do? So I'll just get into the passage. So if you can turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to read through to 14. And look out for that question, what should we do? And of course, the response. So this is on page 823. So it's Luke chapter 3. So if you've got one of those white Bibles, it's, in, it's on page 823. So here we go. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptised. So baptised is going under the water and coming up again to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. So the guy here that it's about is a guy called John the Baptist. And he is identified as someone who is to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, he's an interesting character. And by the time this passage is taking place, he was somewhat of a tourist attraction, so to speak. And and people from um, Judea, Jerusalem, Jordan, all around the region were going out to see what this crazy man had to say. Because he had long hair, a beard, he would eat locusts and honey, and his clothes were made of camel hair. He was almost like, you could say he was a bear grills. He was very different, very, very different. And lots of people from all around the region went out to hear what this guy was saying. And so that's Luke's introduction to John the Baptist. And now John is about to speak. When the crowd came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, Who warned you to flee from God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So, when I read this, when I was preparing for this, two questions jumped out at me. First of all, who is this rebuke directed at because it's heavy? And why such a harsh rebuke? Because he's really throwing down here. Um, By calling them brood of snakes, he's essentially saying to them, you sons of Satan. Um, The Jewish people would have been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They would have been familiar with Genesis and they would have been familiar with snakes. So to call them brood of snakes, he's essentially saying, you sons of Satan, who told you to flee the coming wrath? He is really letting rip here. So my question is, who is this rebuke primarily directed at? Now, the beauty of the Gospels is there's four of them. So if you want to find out a little bit more information about a story, 
you just flip over to another gospel. So in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, it recounts this same story about John the Baptist and his rebuke. And it says, it gives us more contextual information, it gives us more detail about the rebuke. So it says that all people from all around came to see him, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from all over Jordan, says tax collectors, soldiers, everyone, common people. But then it also says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees also went out to see what John was saying. And then in Matthew's account, it says that John said to them, said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you sons of Satan. So this rebuke is primarily directed at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But why is... Why is he ripping on these guys? Why is it such a harsh rebuke? What have they done to be singled out and referred to as the sons of Satan? You need to remember that... So Jesus would have been a Jew and Jesus most probably would have identified himself closely with the Pharisees. He would have kept the Torah which they would have kept, the laws. So the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in that, there are 613 rules. And Jesus would have aligned himself with that. And these guys often get a bad rap. You read through, well, as we continue to read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that Jesus continues to butt heads with these guys. They're constantly clashing. The Pharisees are constantly arguing with Jesus and they're butting heads. So what is it that they have done that have caused them to cop this harsh rebuke. So these Pharisees saw themselves as the defenders of the faith. They took things very, very seriously. They were wholly committed to keeping the law. They wanted to revere God. They wanted to show reverence to God. They they wanted to pull themselves out from common society. They wanted to be pious in every single possible way. And so they took the 613 rules in the Torah very seriously. They took it so seriously, in fact, that in order to ensure that they didn't break the rules of the Torah, they also made up laws to protect the laws. So there were the laws in the Torah, and then these guys guys made up more laws to ensure that they didn't break the laws. And so by the time that Jesus rocks on the scene, there's hundreds and hundreds of years of commentary on what it means to keep the law. They took things very seriously. So to give you an illustration of this, we'll take one of the laws in the Torah, which Jesus would have adhered to, and it talks about, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it also talks about don't working on the Sabbath day. And so for these guys, for these Pharisees, in their reverence or their desire to keep that law, they had thought about every possible conceivable way that you could break this law and and work on the Sabbath. So it had gotten to such a point that they'd even discussed about what you would do if a beggar came to your house on the Sabbath to ensure that you don't work and break the Sabbath. So in the, um, the oral law, it's called the rabbinical law, it talks about the correct way to give money to a beggar on the Sabbath to ensure that you don't work. So the debate was about, well, if someone comes to your house and knocks on the door to beg for money, if you go out of your house 
and give the money and place money into their hand, then you've worked. So, according to their reasoning, the correct way to give money on the Sabbath was for you to make sure that you stay inside of your house. The beggar puts his hand through your window and he picks the money up from your hand and then takes it back outside of your house. So you didn't break the law and work on the Sabbath. There's another story in the Gospels where they accuse Jesus of breaking the commandments and working on the Sabbath because... Um, On the Sabbath, in the synagogues, Jesus sees a man who is crippled. And he says to the man who is crippled, pick up your mat and walk. And the the Pharisees swoop in and say, you can't do this. That is breaking the Sabbath. Because they had a long list of things that you couldn't carry around on the Sabbath in case that you broke the Sabbath. A certain amount of weight, if you carried it, Well, you've carried too much weight on the Sabbath, you're working, you've broken the commandment. So they had laws to protect the laws. And so John says to these guys, repent and be baptised. So his message for these Pharisees is just the same for the tax collectors, it's just the same for um, the Roman soldiers. Repent, be baptised. So repent, the Greek word for repent is metanoia, and the Hebrew word for repent is teshuva, which Paul Glass taught me about yesterday, which was pretty cool. But it means more than what we think. Repent means to completely reorientate the direction that you're going with, turn, head in another direction. It's this connection with God. And so John is saying to these guys, just like everybody else, repent, be baptized. And... For these guys, they didn't want to do this because in their minds, their righteousness, their identity was linked to their piety and their knowledge of the law. Who has more knowledge of the law than us? We have thought long and hard about what it means to keep God's law. We have God's law. And yet you're telling us that we need to repent? That is for the Gentiles. We do not need to be baptized. We are pious. We take God's law very seriously. So, John is giving them a rebuke. He's saying, repent. Your desire to keep the letter of the law has caused you to miss the spirit of the law. You are so bound up by your rigid adherence of the the laws and these ritual practices and right belief that you are unable to love your fellow brothers and sisters. You're so entrapped that you cannot lend a helping hand out of fear that you will break one of God's laws. And he's essentially saying to them, is that what God's laws are for? God's laws are to bring life and love. So essentially he's saying to them, you're majoring in the minors, guys. You are majoring in the minors. You've missed the boat. Can't see the forest for the trees. And so that is where his harsh rebuke comes from. That's where he throws down from. He's essentially attacking the hypocrisy of it all. He was going after their their perceived self-righteous piety. And this, their knowledge of the law and their extensive laws made them look down on their fellow humans because they thought these people are not even coming close to God's standard. How despicable. And so John here, the wild man with the long hair and the beard and the locusts and the honey, says, 
Sons of Satan. Repent and be baptized like everybody else. You've missed the big picture. Now, just want to pick it up. Luke chapter 3 verse 10. Now, these Pharisees hadn't been moved by John's words. They hadn't. But some people in the crowd had been moved. And they asked the question, the powerful question. And in the scriptures, you don't pick up on the the tone or the, the way in which they ask it. But they say, what should we do? They've come to that point. They're convicted. They've been headed in one direction, and because of John's words, they're convicted that they're not, they haven't got it right. Missed, they've missed the target. And they say to John, earnestly and genuinely, what should we do, John? What should we do? I, I, I agree with you. I get you. We've missed it. What should we do? I want you to think about how you would respond to someone. If someone came to you earnestly and said, what should I do? So someone is in a desperate state, they're at this crossroads, they've been going in one direction and they're ready to try something different. How would you respond if someone said, what should I do? How would you respond if someone said, what's this this Christian thing all about? You know, like, what's it all about? What should I do? What's what's important? Um, What is the, what are you going to give them? What are you going to hand over to them? Because Jesus and John the Baptist was always getting crook at the Pharisees because he was saying, you give these people a burden. You're burdened and then you burden them. There is no life in this. How would you respond? What is your faith? It's a clarifying question. What should we do? What should I do? What's it all about? I often find it um, interesting when I tell people, first, that I'm a religious studies teacher, second, that I'm a committed Christian, and that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. So as I meet people for the first time, it's always interesting to see how they respond to that and listen to the things they've picked up on. A couple of years I was in a share house with some people I didn't really know and they'd always have different friends coming through no in, in introduction to Christianity or Seventh-day Adventism and it's always interesting when I say oh I'm a sevy and to hear the things that they've picked up on to hear the things that they say back to you and, you, and it's, it's kind of like you can step outside of your faith for a second and look at it from the outside looking in and you just and I often found myself thinking is that what I'm all about? Is that what it is? Because times change, but people don't necessarily change. Yeah, the Pharisees, they had their rabbinical law, their oral law. But 2,000 years on, sometimes I've found myself worrying more about not breaking cultural expectations than I have actually found myself worrying about how I'm going to actually love people. Um, So, how would you respond? I just want to 
look at how John responds. So this is John. Think of his context. He's got the 613 rules in the Torah. And then he's, he would have been privy to all of the oral laws, all of the rabbinical laws. He knows this stuff. Look at how he responds. This is what he gives to them. This is, this is what he says. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to him to be baptized and they asked, what should we do? So they weren't discouraged by his message. The others were discouraged by the Pharisees' message, but the tax collectors, they are asking this question, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. This is the punchline. This is John's punchline. It's not complicated, but sometimes it's harder to hide behind I mean sometimes it's easier to hide behind cultural laws and things and look to those things to justify oneself than it is to actually move and love if I could just get the band to come up now and as we continue to journey through the gospel of Luke this year you are going to see this punchline reflected time and time again by Jesus. He says things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Another guy, a teacher of the law, comes up to him and says, out of all of these laws that we've got that we try to keep to be holy and right in your sight, what's the most important? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and love your brother and sister as yourself. That's what it's about. If you are confused by what it is, if you've lost sight of what Christianity is about or you're on the outside looking in at what it is, as I read the Gospel of Luke, it's about that. Genuine love for each other. And if it's genuine love for each other, it's for people that hurt you. It's for your enemies, the people you don't get on with. It's genuine love for each other. Jesus identified himself with the down and outers. He said, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. That's what Christianity is about. And that is inspiring, but at the same time, I find it incredibly challenging. Because love isn't easy. It's hard. But the beauty of the Christian faith is that Jesus, he gives us this wonderful metaphor. He says, I am the vine... And you are the branches. You cannot produce fruit. Fruit here is genuine love for others. You cannot love others unless you abide in me and my love. My love will pour out of you. It will give you fruit. It will empower you to stop majoring in the minors and get hung up on cultural rules. And it's, it's hard. I just want to leave you with a quote from Mother Teresa. Same sentiments as John the Baptist. 
She says, what can you do for world peace? Go home and love your families. What can I do for world peace? Go home and love my wife. What can I do for world peace? I can love the people that I work with every day. The ones that make it hard, the ones I don't agree with. What can I do for world peace? Well, I can love the people that I'm in direct contact with. I don't have to go and do something complicated. I don't even have to leave my current life. This is my life. What can I do? Love the person in front of me. That is the Christian message. Just want to sing along with the band, please. Dear God, I am thankful that you came to this earth. The Bible says that you are love. And when I look at the message of Jesus, when I look at Jesus, what else would love look like poured out in human form? I just pray that you can fill us with your spirit. Empower us to love each other. I know that in and of myself I can't fake this. I need your love in me. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.